So there's a lot of interest uh, these days in de-escalation of, uh, of therapy for um, uh, these patients. Uh, for example, here's a publication from Princess Margaret Hospital um, showing that patients who receive radiation alone for T1 to T3, N0 to N2P, uh, were uh, excellent um, with minimal uh, recurrences locally, regionally, or distantly. And so I was uh, uh, very gratified to participate um, in NRG HN002. I was one of the national co-chairs for radiation oncology. Um, and over two years, we enrolled about 300 patients. Uh, Lionel Dartman participated and really enrolled um, four patients and whatnot, um, which was quite helpful. Um, but we randomized patients uh, with early stage disease to 60 gray in six weeks, which is flat, or 60 gray in five weeks without chemotherapy at all. Um, uh, this protocol uh, completed approval about two years ago. The primary endpoint is two year progression free survival. Um, and so hopefully within the next six months, we'll have uh, the data um, on this protocol. And it is being integrated in the next NRG um, protocol, um, comparing 70 gray and 7 weeks versus 60 gray in six weeks uh, with uh, cisplatin. Um, there's most likely going to be a third arm with uh, 60 gray and uh, something that they're probably going to go on that. Um, and so hopefully we'll be able to cure as many cancers for less side effects um, with uh, de-escalated therapy. But at the same time, everybody's still doing the same thing. So if NRGH uh, N002 is successful, everybody will get 60 gray in six weeks or 60 gray in five weeks. Um, uh, and we've done good enough um, for uh, you know enough people. Um, but. Uh, you know, we all have patients who, you know, don't follow instructions. Um, and sometimes, you know, they're right. Um, so, for example, I had an 82-year-old guy um, who came to see me two years after he was treated with 20 gray and 10 fractions. He had quit um, at that outside hospital because of side effects. He came back with a, I don't know, three-centimeter basal tongue tumor, a couple of lymph nodes in the neck. Um, and, uh, you know... Uh, being a bit uh, egotistical, I told him, look, I don't know how they treated you outside, and I think we did pretty well. I don't think enough side effects. So we queued up a plan to deliver 60 gray and 30 fractions, something like that. And after two treatments, he declined for the therapy. Side effects were just too much. I don't know what he was talking about, but nevertheless. So he wanted to go to hospice, so I convinced him to do um, 20 grade 5 fractions as a sort of palliative dose. And uh, then he went to hospice, and he came back six months later feeling great. Um, he uh, pulled himself out of hospice, and uh, I took a look, and he's had a complete response. How long will that last? I have no idea, but uh, maybe he didn't need 60 grade and 30 fractions, or 70 grade and 35 fractions, and maybe this is all he needed. Um, and so we thought a lot about how to personalize uh, treatment for oral peripheral cancer. And one of the things that uh, we've developed in collaboration with our mathematical oncologists is this concept of a proliferation saturation index. So the hypothesis is that, that there's a tumor carrying capacity, so a maximum volume of the tumor that can be supported by a given environment. So if you think about it, well, there's only so much uh, volume a tumor can occupy potentially in the neck. 
Um, there's only so many blood vessels and so much uh, nutrients that a uh, tumor can recruit without uh, killing the patient. And so this proliferation saturation index um, reflects the history of reciprocal uh, uh, changes of the tumor in its environment. And uh, we also hypothesis, hypothesize that it can be that it's patient-specific. So to give you an example of how we calculate this, Basically, we draw out a tumor um, at uh, two different points in time, and then we put it in this equation, and I'm not a mathematician, so you'll have to trust Dr. Andrew when he represents what we're saying. Um, but in general, um, uh, we take an individual's, um, uh, in this example, a tongue tumor or neck tumor, and uh, each one individually, we can calculate the proliferation saturation index. And visually, sort of, uh, the hypothesis is if you take a single point in time, um, I don't think you can see the line here on the uh, screen, but if you have a CT scan right here and uh, the volume is the same, um, the growth rates may actually be quite a bit different. And we hypothesize that the response to radiation might be uh, quite a bit different as well. Um, and this is what we see when we do that. So we took uh, about 50 patients um, that had uh, daily cumbria CTs, and we contoured out um, visible tumor on uh, weekly scans um, <coughs> with the pretreatment calculated PSI and looked at where uh, the model said um, the tumor would be after so much radiation and where they actually were. And uh, it uh, fits, the PSI model fit the response to radiation fairly well. So that's all fine and good. And what, what does that mean? Well, in the same cohort of patients, we also saw that uh, patients who responded quickly to radiation, so um, in general, they had a uh, shrinkage of their tumor at four weeks of greater than 32%. We cured 100% of those patients. Now, those who didn't shrink as quickly, you know, we still cured quite a few, but uh, there was a significant difference both uh, in both regional control as well as disease-free survival. So what can we do with the PSI? Um, well, if we start to change how uh, we fractionate the tumor, so here, for example, in blue is two gray a day, five days a week, in green, 1.2 gray twice a day, five, uh, five days a week, or here in yellow, uh, three gray a day, once a day. You can see that the PSI model suggests that the tumor will respond differently to each of those fractionation regimens. And in some instances, you know, that difference isn't much at all, but in some instances, that difference can be substantial. Um, and so uh, you see that this line right here, the 32% response. So some tumors, while they're responding, don't get you to that 32% uh, response of four weeks. But potentially, if you change the fractionation, you're getting across that line. And maybe you cure more cancer. So the hypothesis that we have is that for um, two iso-effective fractionation schemes, um, the PSI potentially can predict improvements in response. And when we uh, mapped out 
um, differences in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, the calculated value of PSI and the potential reduction, um, we can see, again, some tumors uh, may respond better to differences in fractionation. So based on that, um, we've initiated a phase two protocol um, to test uh, this model in uh, early stage for forensic cancer patients that are HPV positive. And our hypothesis is that uh, um, by taking advantage of the PSI and selecting patients to their uh, best fractionation scheme, we can uh, improve the percentage of patients achieving a 32% response uh, at four weeks um, from 49% to about 63%. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So you don't know the PSI until you start treating, right? Did you find that on your CT CTs? Uh, no. So we calculated pretreatment. So most patients come in with a CT scan yeah. and then you have a CT stem. Yeah. So okay. in general, those are sufficiently far apart in time so we can calculate the PSI. So have you validated more than those 50 patients? What's the validation of the model? Uh, so, um, we have those 50 patients, and then we have another cohort, um, but it's, it's a lot of work, so... Um, Do you have other groups that show kind of how sensitive the model is? Uh, so, we've done uh, sort of correlation coefficients, and uh, the correlation coefficient is about 91%, um, with a uh, uh, correlation of where the model says the response will be over a course of time, and the actual volume uh, calculated on the CBCTs. The nice thing about this whole trial is there is no experiment. These are all standard fractionations. Um, so it's really about uh, seeing if the model works or not. If it works great, if it doesn't, you don't need them harmed because they're all getting standard care. Um, and so this is the flow of the trial. Um, basically, early stage or cancer patients, two CTs of the neck uh, separated two weeks apart, so diagnostic CT, SIM CT in general. Um, and then I calculate out the PSI, and patients are assigned either to standard fractionation or hyperfractionation. And the primary endpoint is response uh, at four weeks, either by uh, CBCT, CT, or uh, MRI. And then we finish out um, the standard uh, dosing, sort of uh, not a range depending on the size of the tumor, somewhere between 60 and 70 grand. That's a good question. Yeah. When you have a multitude of sites, the primary and the nodal disease, how do you choose which um, area to calculate your PSI from? So uh, one of the exclusion criteria I, I have that I didn't put on the slide is five uh, uh, or less. Um, so. Uh, maximum what I'm drawing out is six sites of disease, um, and so I have a hard hierarchy um, in the protocol as to um, which ones we pay attention to. So no over primary because we have uh, uh, we're less likely to control nodal disease versus primary disease, and then larger uh, node uh, takes priority over lower node or smaller node. Uh, so that's our priority list. And what's the science behind that? Makes sense. So. One more question. So, the, the PSI, is there a biologic underpinning of why you think a patient with a high PSI would be more likely to respond to hyperfraction therapy? 
So the, I guess the radiobiological theory is, um, you can kind of go back here. Um, so a, this patient would have a higher PSI, so a slower, at this point in time, a slower growth rate, right? So if you're delivering uh, treatments twice a day, you're perhaps more likely to catch the cell or any uh, sensitive part of the cell cycle versus a faster growing tumor. Uh, once a day radiation may be sufficient to catch it uh, instead of sensitive, uh, sensitive parts of the cell cycle. Can I ask? So, a faster growing tumor would respond more. I mean, the way that the red line is steeper, so it suggests that a faster growing tumor shrinks faster. That's correct. And the data shows that. It's not. So, whether the model reflects reality, it's hard to say. But uh, you know those are sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, accepted radiobiological principles that faster growing tumors uh, respond more quickly to radiation. Uh, though you know, the difference is we've never been able to prove um, that that even though it makes sense that that rapidity of response is associated with outcome. So, for example, take a small cell lung cancer, responds really quickly to radiation, but probably have to cure those people. So, we have a, quite a few secondary endpoints uh, as part of this trial as well. Um, uh, we're collecting uh, serum and uh, oral gargle uh, to see if we can detect um, HPV. Um, and to follow kinetics of clearance uh, of HPV. So again, looking for markers of response and control to uh, personalized radiation. We'll be collecting tissue um, to look at uh, gene expression, radiosensitivity, potentially metoxy and other things. And uh, we're doing quite a bit of imaging um, for these patients. Um, CT scans at the start of treatment, mid treatment, and uh, scans uh, two to three months after treatment and potentially looking at uh, radiomics features uh, in these patients as well. So, um, quick note about statistics. Um, basically, at the end of the day, we need 60 patients. Protocols activated. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, the seven patients we've approved, six have been assigned to hyperfractionation so far, uh, one assigned to conventional fractionation. Didn't really expect that, but that's how it's played out. Um, and uh, we've got uh, three patients so far to the three-month post-scans, and all of them have been controlled so far. So one of the things I briefly mentioned um, in the secondary endpoints uh, was uh, looking at uh, any gene expression signature of uh, radiosensitivity. Um, and so our plan is uh, to sort of use that in a follow-up trial to the uh, PSI trial. And by coincidence, radiosensitivity index, RSI, PSI, so nice little symmetry there. Um, this was developed by Javier Torres Roca at, uh, at Moffitt. Um, he uh, took uh, the NCI 60 cell lines, uh, measured uh, the uh, surviving fraction after 2 gray in all the cell lines, um, got uh, gene expression uh, signatures on ethnometric platform. And he developed a uh, 10 gene uh, rank based uh, linear algorithm um, uh, to uh, sort of 
uh, get an association uh, with uh, SF2. Uh, in a prospective cohort um, from the Netherlands that had neck cancer, um, patients who were uh, predicted to be radiosensitive uh, had a improved local mutant control over patients who were predicted to be uh, radio-resistant. Um, this was significance. Um, so we have some preliminary data that can connect that uh, radiosensitivity index um, may be a uh, predictive. Uh, well, in this case, it was a prognostic marker. Um, but it does have data in other sites that uh, suggest that it's a predictive marker as well. About uh, two years ago, um, we published a study in Lancet uh, Oncology um, uh, using RSI as a, uh, uh, as a platform to potentially select a radiation dose. Um, because if RSI is a broad equivalent to um, surviving fraction of 2 gray, we can uh, replace the, an arbitrarily chosen alpha, which is a measure of radiation cytotoxicity proportional to the dose for the patient specific value. And then we can take um, the dose of radiation, a uh, number of fractions that are RSI value uh, beta. Um, and uh, develop what uh, is called a, a genomically adjusted radiation dose. Um, so you can see here on the left-hand side, uh, sort of the physical dose that's positive, uh, 45 gray, 60 gray, 70 gray, and you actually calculate um, a, a genomically adjusted radiation dose and look at sort of the biological effect, the predicted biological effect. You can see now that there's quite a bit of range uh, across uh, physical dose that's positive. So, what we're doing is, well, number one, we're uh, in the process of uh, developing a, a CLIA certified test um, based on RSI um, as part of um, the PSI trial. We're collecting all those tissues. We'll get a uh, RSI value. Um, we'll have outcome by the time uh, the um, uh, test is uh, available, and we'll be able to go back and quickly construct a uh, sort of a guard framework. And basically, what this tells us is that you reach a certain dose that's um, in the guard uh, uh, value. Um, that uh, once you reach this threshold, you know, uh, basically you're controlling the disease to the vast majority of patients. In some patients, that uh, uh, physical dose may only be 50 gray. Some patients, that physical dose may be 70 gray. Um, but hopefully, it will allow us to personalize radiation dose. If I remember that paper, it was a mixed tumor type. It wasn't just one. Is that true? I'm so he's validated in, in a number of different tumor types. So he has data in breast cancer, rectal cancer, esophageal cancer, and neck cancer. He's trying to make it a, a sort of um, any tumor type. Because you take the if you look at the NCI sixty, it's a panel of uh, I think seven or ten different. Um, now, is it going to work? Well, that's why we do the trial. Right. Um, I guess I'm just surprised that the same kind of gene panel. That's always been the knock against his gene expression signature. Yeah. Is, well, you know, breast isn't the same as a neck. 
um, his response is, well, you know, the end things to radiation response should be the same across, you know, cell types. Um, now, well, we know like when bones respond very differently when they're in apoptotic pathway than other carcinomas, so there can be differences. Potentially, yeah. I mean, there's many different mechanisms of cell death. Um, uh, you know, again, is it the right test? You know, it's hard to say. You know, again, you know, if you yeah. do a trial like this, right, and you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, and I don't think we have, so we have a you know, in the PSI, we'll have that as part of the trial. And then uh, based on the RSI, we'll um, select the dose, okay? But we don't just select the dose and go, right? And uh, we'll try and keep it safe. At this point, we're uh, uh, allowing the dose to range from 54 grade to 82 grade. But at the same time, we're looking at the patient, you know, on a weekly, daily basis. So if you think that a tumor is radiosensitive, it should be dying quickly. So um, we're looking, or right now, we're using uh, that marker of response to four weeks. So if it's 32% less, maybe we're confident, and we go to 54 gray or whatever it is. Um, but if it's not responding, well, maybe we shouldn't trust the RSI. And we'll go to a standard dose. Versus, tells us, well, this is really, really radio resistant. You need to go to 80 gray. But if it responds really quickly, maybe we just go to the standard dose. You know, versus, okay, it's not responding and it's radio resistant. Maybe we should pump up with this. So, uh, you know, we're not relying solely on, or we won't, because this trial is still a year or so in the future. Um, we're we're going to rely on. Uh, surrogate markers, and potentially other things that we learned from the PSI trial. So, um, say, you know, 100% uh, of the patients with, who cleared an oral article of HPV in two weeks are cured. And we can easily fit that into the trial as well. Again, we want to be safe. We're, we're not going to put all our eggs in the RSI or the guard basket. Um, because when you're curing most of these patients with standard radiation, you know, I think you it's you know, you have to be safe. So we're we're building in these sort of safety markers um, uh, into any potential trials with uh, RSI. But at least in that neck, um, you know, in other uh, sites, say for example breast or, or rectal, where you're giving a pre-op dose or post-op dose, um, you know, you can potentially, you know, uh, rely on the surgery to make up for any differences in CR or whatever your marker is. So, um, we, we have thought about some of these safety issues. Have you seen differences in the, either the RSI or the PSI in patients that are P16 negative, which is positive? So, um, most of what we've done so far is, has been using um, the uh, total cancer care uh, uh, data set, um, which is about uh, 10,000 uh, patients, but did it off it in gene sequencing form. Um, unfortunately, uh, only 250 of those cases were NNEC, so I can't really tell you about that. But uh, when, and if you look at some of those papers, um, 
presents um, a variety of tune types. And the sort of listing or order of how RSI is ranking uh, sensitive tumors and resistant tumors makes sense. So for example, GBM has some of the highest uh, RSI values, so neural radio resistant makes sense, right? Um, cervical cancer has some of the lower uh, RSI values. Again, it's a radio-sensitive tumor. We're treating it with uh, definitive radiation. Kind of makes sense. Um, interesting part uh, of that data set is many tumors are bimodal in distribution. So you have a cohort that's uh, predicted to be sensitive and almost a separate cohort that are predicted to be resistant. Um, uh, and so we're digging into that um, and trying to link those expression signatures with patient data um, and outcome. Uh, and it's looking pretty good for press. So <clears throat> right now, um, we're in the process of the asserted fighting for head neck because we're furthest along as well as breast because uh, my colleague, Dr. Um, Diaz, has uh, 600 patients with links, RSI values, and clinical data. So that's going to be the second one out of the data. So because we do so well with um, HPV positive or fringe cancer, we actually don't need too many patients to do this trial, um, around 40. Uh, though, uh, you know, depending on um, sort of the outcome of the PSI trial, of course, many of these things can be changed. And, We've been trying to take this to a sort of multi-institutional uh, setting um, to uh, improve our statistics. So I'm going to stop there with sort of my research interests. Um, any questions about that? All right, so now I'll go into the, the vision thing. Um, <laughs> And uh, hopefully I won't disappoint you by raising your taxes. Uh, so um, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of folks. Um, I think it was 13 or 15 people yesterday um, about Dartmouth, uh, um, uh, sort of the vision for sort of a larger health system, as well as uh, for uh, uh, the department or the section. Um, and so, you know, as we think about uh, a larger, you know, health system, um, you know, in terms of uh, what radiation oncology can can do or provide, and one of the things that we have to think about is uh, how our patients are going to get to us. Um, and so, currently, um, you know, I, I threw up this map of uh, travel times. So, in the blue is. Uh, basically a 30-minute drive to the center of the arrow. So roughly where we are now, um, a 30-minute drive. Um, the uh, satellite soft, uh, site up in St. Johnbury, and some of the uh, areas that uh, were discussed with me um, in terms of where um, Dartmouth may be going in the future or relationships that they're uh, talking about between uh, Nashua, Manchester, um, Concord, things like that. So you can kind of see, you know, um, where spaces may be, where uh, radiation oncology may be needed, um, because people in between, you know, sometimes won't travel 
to see a radiation oncologist and get treatment uh, on a daily basis for five to seven weeks. And uh, I got a flavor of that pretty early in my career. I was a medical student at MD Anderson, and uh, I was seeing a patient in radiation oncology. And I think it was, I don't know, some guy from Tennessee, he was in his 60s, and you know, we were talking to him about like, seven weeks of uh, treatment. And uh, he told me, um, son, I'd rather be dead than spend seven weeks in Houston. Patients have their say, so we have to, uh, we have to, to a certain extent, go out to where they are. And uh, I know, or I've heard uh, quite a bit about sort of the population growing sort of southern and southern, southeastern New Hampshire is where, where the patients are, but there are other places sort of, you know, and I don't know where the population is, I have to move in between here and in between uh, to provide services to, uh, to folks who may not be able to travel. And so when we think about sort of a, a partnership network or a expanding health network, you know, how does radiation oncology play into that? Um, and I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of what we can do first, especially with potentially health systems that have their own services that are a little bit skittish, is to initially talk to them about supporting business and asymmetry um, to help uh, our partners, you know, number one, be safe. Uh, number two, uh, develop the technical uh, skills that are necessary to procedures um, that are important, um, whether it's SRS, SBRT, um, whatever it will be, and to do it in sort of a high quality and safe manner. Um, the second thing that, you know, especially again with uh, potentially sites that are uh, reluctant to uh, come under the umbrella of, say, the uh, section or department of radiation oncology is talk to them about peer review and quality assurance and sort of playing into the hotel medicine thing. Um, what I think that uh, Dartmouth wants is to expand, you know, quality healthcare, you know, across its network. Um, and so it's not just the, the name on the sign outside, but, you know, it's a single standard of care it's a uh, assurance to our patients that if they go to Keene or uh, Concord um, and they're going to a Dartmouth Hitchcock hospital or center, that they're getting similar care that they would receive here. And here's an example of actually something that we did at Moffitt. We looked at our, uh, and I think it's very similar to potentially what may be happening here. Uh, we looked at all the patients that came and got a consultation for head and neck cancer uh, at Moffitt, and a large percentage of those patients stayed, maybe 70%, 80%. But uh, a reasonable percentage went home. You know, they, uh, they'd rather, I don't know, take care of their dog or whatever it was, um, rather than treatment at Moffitt. And what we found was um, there was an enormous survival difference um, between patients who were seen and evaluated, treated at Moffitt, versus those who were seen and evaluated and treated somewhere else with definitive radiation. And that survival difference was on the order of about 15%. Um, that survival difference is more than any chemotherapy that I'm ever aware of. So, 
let's say it's not 15%, let's say it's 10%, let's say it's 5%, that's still an enormous difference, an enormous benefit to our patients. So writing these kinds of things in, into contracts with partners um, that, uh, you know, for quality purposes, we're going to help you with peer review, um, with evaluation of your cases, access to our tumor boards, things like that. I mean, this is low hanging fruit. We don't have to develop. We don't have to develop any new drug to uh, cure more patients. We just have to teach people how to do it right. So, question for you: Do you yeah. think the, this um, performance um, status or anything like that was it analyzed? Maybe sicker patients aren't staying because um, of travel. Yeah. So we did a multivariate analysis with the variables that we had: performance status, primary sites, um, uh, overall stage, T stage, end stage. Um, we didn't really have P16, um, but when we separated it out by primary site, so not all friendly cases, it was the same thing. Um, and it's consistent with the head and neck um, RTOG data so that says that, if you follow yeah. protocol, you do better. Yeah, yeah. academic sites do better, but there's a lot of yeah. well, you determine the outcome of the patient's treatment outside hospitals? Cancer registry. Zero link where your registry to your Moffitt to, to know that they were seen in Moffitt? How do you know that they were initially seen in Moffitt? Oh, because these are all patients that have medical record numbers and a consultant. And then they're also in the in cancer registry, so you can meet them. Yeah, so <clears throat> this was a one-off. I mean, this is almost 2,000 patients. If this was a one-off, you know, you could say, okay, single institution, but you see it in NRG, um, high-volume recruiting centers versus low-volume recruiting centers. You see it in National Cancer Database Studies um, and other institutions that cover similar things. Um, do you use this information during consultation? Sometimes. Sometimes. You know, it just, just sort of depends. If I like it or not. <laughs> no, um, you know, uh, and I think, uh, you know, we haven't really looked at this in other sites. So, um, in other sites that are definitively treated with radiation, say cervical cancer, esophageal cancer, anal cancer, um, can we see the same things? I don't know, but uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm surprised. Uh, kind of related to Dr. Potty's question, but was it challenging to create that link between your patients that you saw and the cancer registry data? Do you feel like you have a system that allows you to do this analysis fairly straight in a straightforward manner? Or um, I had three residents. There's the system right there. Yeah. So you know, all these all these databases are relatively dirty, um, and so there was a lot of data cleaning uh, to do this. Um, and uh, you know, many of these patients actually they went outside for treatment. Actually, we come back for follow up, um, whether to us or to the surgeons or whatnot. Um, uh, and so. You know, in what we presented in, in this paper, our local regional control and things like this, you know, overall survival is a pretty hard in the point. People are dead or they're not dead, right? We put it up in SSDI or you know, obituaries, things like that. So, you know, I presented this, but we see the same thing for local regional control, disease free survival. Um, so, 
you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms of when we build partnerships, you know, this is really important. Um, but, you know, this doesn't come free, right? Um, and so, you know, our clinical faculty um, need to be sort of rewarded for uh, helping others out, um, for taking the time uh, to do quality assurance for, uh, for other sites and providing their expertise. Additionally, um, you know, in that process, I think there's uh, patient flow um, both ways, um, potentially uh, similar to um, uh, surgery here at Dartmouth. Um, the uh, complicated cases um, come here, and the less complicated cases, whether it's palliative or whatnot, uh, go out to uh, <coughs> partnership sites. Um, multidisciplinary clinics, um, again, uh, I think uh, care is best when you know, a lot of uh, uh, folks get together and talk about things. Um, at Moffitt, we're uh, very interested and we've developed multidisciplinary clinics almost across all disease sites. Uh, in that neck, I think that's uh, worked out really well. Um, and so, you know, patients who come to Dartmouth um, are discussed either in a multidisciplinary clinic or multidisciplinary team board, and those recommendations can go out or, or patients can stay. Um, I think another important piece of uh, integration across partnership sites is with research, uh, providing clinical trials, um, and uh, an a efficient way to open trials, whether it's IITs, whether it's pharma-sponsored trials or proper group trials across the Dartmouth network. And one of the reasons to come to Dartmouth is um, uh, the latest and greatest, and uh, hopefully those are on uh, trials. Uh, Dartmouth is also part of the Orion Network, um, and uh, there's a significant uh, potential there with access to a larger patient uh, cohorts um, and patient data. Um, so if you're not aware of it, you know, Orion has gene expression data, has other patient data um, that's available um, as part of the Orion network. Um, Dartmouth has access to that. There's also funding for grants and whatnot. In fact, Phil and I applied for an Orion grants um, uh, late last year. Um, and unfortunately, we crossed the first hurdle, but didn't cross the second hurdle. But uh, that was for really 250000 So. There's money out there with um, uh, a significant interest, and in fact, emphasis on radiation oncology. Um, technology, um, I'm very glad to see that uh, you guys are installing MR Linux. Um, again, uh, you know, this is a incredibly, I think it will be an incredibly useful tool and a differentiator. Um, so I know you guys have uh, captured um, or sort of the dominant market player, but you know, giving patients a reason to stay um, to do stereotactic radiation without pancreatic cancer, uh, prostate cancer, whatnot, uh, in a in a uh, environment where patients perhaps are willing to stay for a week or a week and a half, but maybe unwilling to stay for five weeks or seven weeks. There's the uh, you know inevitable question about protons. Um, uh, you know. Um, it's a high expense, whether it's worth the, uh, the uh, expense and effort, it's hard to say, I think. Um, but uh, you look across the landscape, and 
uh, seeing other top cancer centers um, acquiring protons to a certain extent, you have to keep up with the Joneses. Um, and there's obviously certain situations, pediatrics, all days for protons to make the right benefit. Um, you guys are already doing it, um, but uh, you know, one of the great reasons I think to come here is collaborations with Dartmouth College, engineering group, physics group, computer science group. Um, much of the future, I think, of radiation oncology is going to come with computer science, machine learning, auto-class learning, uh, automated planning, things that, like that to make uh, sort of our life easier and to actually make adaptive therapy uh, possible. Because if you have to recontour and replan every time uh, something changes um, and things are changing a lot, say like in a, a pancreatic cancer or cancer, you have to worry about the draw of the stomach, things like that all the time. Um, I think this is uh, incredibly key to moving the field forward. Uh, you know, another key, of course, is money. <coughs> you know, grants, philanthropy, departmental funds to uh, support patients. Uh, again, I sort of harp on this whole housing thing or transportation thing. Um, but, uh, you know, if uh, we're going to keep patients here, um, it's important to be able to help them out to receive the best care possible. Especially if we're sort of, uh, uh, sort of particularly emphasizing the complicated cases, um, specifically here for the main center in Dartmouth. Um, supporting uh, faculty with recruitment, retention, uh, development, um, seeding uh, potential uh, projects with uh, small grant funds uh, to uh, support uh, new ideas. Um, and uh, as well as staff recruitment and retention. And that's about as much vision as I have for today. <laughs> I appreciate your attention. <laughs> Questions? So if often do they have housing for patients that people take advantage of? How does it work there? Yeah, so um, we have a whole lot of sponsored by the American Cancer Society. So I know that uh, the American Cancer Society is doing that with him, um, but uh, that doesn't mean you know you can't find some rich guy to you know, throw up a you know, twenty-bed hotel or something like that. Um, you know, uh, it just depends on what Dartmouth emphasizes um, and what's uh, you know what's potential in terms of land access and uh, you know importance. Yeah, and there's always legal issues, but that's why you take place. Jim, I, I know that there's some um, not regional, but at least geographically dispersed affiliates for Moffitt. And um, how in radiation oncology um, are you able to maintain kind of disease-specific specialization um, in the geographically dispersed affiliate sites? Of, um, you know, when the volumes may not be the same as they are at the mothership to yeah. so support that. So currently, we actually only have um, one partnership site as a, a daycare one plant. And so we have two physicians there. Um, and uh, basically, the um, so what I talked about was sort of peer review. Um, uh, that was an open hospital. So there was another group of radiation oncologists uh, that were there. We took over the physics and the symmetry were sort of managed, as they say. 
Um, and part of the contract was that uh, uh, the outside group had to meet a certain level of peer review kind of quality assurance, um, which they had been unable to do. Um, and so after about a year and a half, they're out. And so what did that, that entail, the peer review? Uh, looking at your plans and then showing up uh, and uh, meeting a certain level of uh, basically uh, no major deviations. Um, and so, uh, you know, currently we had um, sort of uh, a breast cancer specialist because it's a big breast cancer center. Um, uh, so the majority we had like a six surgeon group of breast cancer uh, surgeons. So a lot of the volumes for us. So we strategically placed the breast cancer specialists out there, uh, as well as sort of another general radiation oncologist. Um, and so uh, they're connected to our sort of mothership quality assurance as well, peer review. Um, and so there's uh, you know, site-specific uh, peer review um, via you know, basically the conferencing. Um, now that the other group is sort of on their way out, and it opens up sort of room for uh, more site-specific uh, positions to uh, be hired and to go over there. Um, and so again, uh, we play to their strengths, um, and their strengths in particular have been in uh, CMS and rest. So they have a big neurosurgical group, they have a big rest cancer uh, group. Um, and so we, we can prioritize them those sort of site-specific that's good. Your first anecdote was sort of extreme hypofractionation. Is that a viable direction for clinical trials in the future? Uh, absolutely. Um, so one of the projects that, that we're working on is um, something called the uh, tumor immune microenvironment. Um, and uh, uh, one of the sort of uh, or the hypothesis is that you know, um, you know, cancer has sort of escaped immune surveillance and immune suppression, and so can we push uh, the tumor with radiation to um, get it to uh, a place where the immune system recognizes it and uh, takes care of it from there without any further treatments or medications or you know therapy or whatnot, and so. In that, uh, in that sort of model, um, actually, uh, hyperfractionated treatments seem to push the tumor quite a bit better than conventionally fractionated treatments. So, you know, here in this trial that I talked about with PSI, is 1.2 gray BID whole way through, or 2 gray AA whole way through. But why do we do that? Why can't we do 2 gray, and then the next day we'll do 10 gray? And then, maybe a few gray here or there, and it pushes the tumor to uh, sort of a immune active state, and then you step back and let, you know, you know, NK cells and, you know, whatever else take over. So, you know, it's a different paradigm, um, but you're exactly right. You know, there's other situations potentially where we can use radiation sort of non-traditional ways to uh, improve outcomes. Speaking of ambulance, what experience have 
state of national um, protocols evaluating um, kind of abscopal effects of, of radiation yeah. in terms of priming uh, the system? It's a little bit all over the place. Um, so, uh, you know, nothing's really been published yet, um, but at the last ASCO meeting, um, there were two presentations, one in lung cancer with pembrolizumab and one in MF cancer with pembrolizumab. The uh, lung cancer pembrolizumab was positive, or at least preliminary positive, and the neck cancer pembrolizumab was preliminarily negative. And the positive trial is in metastatic disease, just radiating one? Uh, I believe they allowed one to five. Um, we have an active trial at Moffitt in uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, um, where patients get uh, an EOB plus or minus uh, uh, stereotype radiation. Um, and uh, again, looking at the same thing, um, uh, finding the immune system, trying to improve outcomes with sort of uh, limited uh, radiation. Um, uh, that's active. He's accrued, I believe, 20 patients. Uh, he's not most institutional. It's open at OSU now. Um, so uh, hopefully, you know, there'll be some nice data. Um, but he chose local cell because of uh, easy access for tissue. So you have skin lesions and biopsy on the deal, or not easy cases, as well as sort of the viral, often viral immunology. So he was quite interested in that. That's uh, one of our physicians, uh, Sunday McKenna, who's, uh, he, uh, somehow he got lucky. He was a PhD immunologist. So uh, he really uh, sort of hit his uh, professional career over the time. Curious about uh, you, your fellow's uh, endeavor into participating using the Orion network or database, as you call it. Uh, is there a barrier or two that you think, if it were removed, would have better enabled you to get that grant or use the Orion data? Uh, yeah, I was smarter. <laughs> I mean, do you think that we're set up adequately to participate with Orion right now? Um, you know, it's a, it's a new process. So this was actually the first round of, uh, of grants, um, and uh, so there were some there were some hiccups, sort of, um, uh, with sort of the grant submission process and how they did things. Um, and you know, in general, we're we're always swimming a little upstream um, with radiation. Uh, you know, we don't have the, the freedom uh, in the curative setting that uh, uh, you know, medical oncologists have in the metastatic setting, um, in the sense that well, they don't cure cancer, so you know they can try new things because you know, the old drug may work isn't taking care of the problem. Whereas we have to be a little bit safer because we're curing people, um, and we can't allow ourselves to move to something uh, fantastical. Well, it may be underpinned by you know uh, great data and you know, great hypothesis, but you know if we cure five percent less, that's a huge loss. So uh, you know, but at the same time, uh, you know it's it's a little bit about uh, you know, creativity and putting together a strong case. But uh, you know the the samples are out there. Um, in fact, part of the sort of uh, uh, incentive for applying for these grants is uh, Orion will pay the sequence, so you don't even have to put that in the grant. So the um, 
uh, the stuff that I presented about RSI and getting tissue, um, the Orion grant would have paid for that upfront. I think that put it in. So it's a, uh, you know, it does provide freedom in that sense to um, to, uh, to get uh, enormous amounts of data that then you know you can go over to your bioinformatics people and say, you know, can we look at this in the context of the trial and you know, maybe we can do things. Maybe our hypothesis was wrong, but uh, now we have you know, 10,000 genes, uh, all with uh, expression levels, and uh, can we come up with a new hypothesis that uh, will take us to the next step? Jim, last night you um, talked to us at dinner about uh, a really interesting subject, which is essentially uh, the institutional perception and approach towards ratings and oncology at Moffitt and various other sites. Um, just for the audience here, would you be interested in kind of talking a little bit about what is your perception of how uh, one can take um, a, a place like Radiation College at Moffitt and use some of what you've learned there about how it's approached and handled and how we apply it to various sites? You know, I, I think it's, um, I think a lot of it's about, uh, about education. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, the vast majority of your patients think you're a radiologist. Uh, that's what they call me. Aren't you my radiologist? Sure. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that extends to many of our colleagues as well. They, they, don't, know, um, they don't know what we can do. Um, uh, you know, maybe as simple as, you know, you know offense telling a surgeon that, uh, Radiation can stop okay. um, I had a conversation with a surgical resident in, in, uh, in, in my residency training. So, well, we can cut off the vessel for all of them, and I can stop it from bleeding too. So, you know, it just depends on the risks and benefits. Um, and so, I really feel a big part of that is multidisciplinary things um, is seeing patients with your colleagues. And you know, uh, I think everybody here has been very nice. You know, people are nice and mocked. Uh, but uh, you know, seeing seeing you in the clinic with the patient together, you know, provides a forum for you as a radiation oncologist to uh, show what you know and what you can do. Um, and in a setting where potentially patients uh, can be you know, helps gratify, please, whatnot, um, and your colleagues sort of, when, when they see that, when they see that in action, um, you know, I think they can be sort of uh, impressed and, uh, you know, in their minds, you know, I'm not saying this is true, but raised from the level of a technician to a physician. Um, and so when you uh, try and change the culture um, like that, Try and reach a profile. Um, a lot of it's about that groundwork, uh, about uh, not just waiting in the basement for the, for the patient to come to you, but to go up to um, your colleagues' clinic and uh, get in the, in the weeds, help make decisions, you know, even outside of something. Well, thank you very much.